This is StoryBeat, storytellers on storytelling. An exploration into how master storytellers and artists develop and build brilliant stories and works of art that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators of all kinds find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University in the heart of downtown Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Well, I'm thrilled to have one of my favorite guests, producer, writer, director Rocky Lang, return to StoryBeat today. Rocky's the co-author of Letters from Hollywood with archivist Barbara Hall, who was a recent guest on the show. I thought it would be great to get Rocky's point of view on writing the book and its unexpected journey to completion and publishing. Rocky's also the executive producer of a new Lifetime movie called You Can't Take My Daughter, starring Lindsay Fonseca and Kirstie Alley. Maybe we'll get double lucky and Rocky will also give us a few thoughts about the state of Hollywood today. To remind Storybeat listeners, Rocky Lang's been involved in the motion picture and television business all his life. He's also the author of nine books, including Letters from Hollywood, which is available at Amazon.com. It's also available at fine booksellers everywhere. It's so wonderful to welcome my good friend, Rocky Lang, back to the show. Rocky, thanks so much for being with me today. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, and and thanks for reaching out. So, you know, I want to talk briefly about the book. Obviously, covered a lot of it with Barbara, but I'm curious, right off the bat, you put a letter in here from your father, Jennings Lang, to H.N. Swanson. Uh, Explain to the listeners who H.N. Swanson was, and and tell us a little bit about your dad and why you thought this, because I can tell you why I think so, but I want to know why you thought this was a great letter to put in the book. Well, Swanee, as he was called, was a very famous uh, lit agent uh, back in the day, and he represented, you know, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Gertrude Stein, and uh, I've got actually some wonderful letters from Hemingway to Fitzgerald that was in the Swan, Swan, uh, Swanson Archive. Right. Um, you know, just a, a really a pillar um, in Hollywood, and um, so that was what my dad wrote to, and the, and the genesis of the entire book came out of that, finding that letter. And uh, one day I returned uh, home, and there was a letter from the Academy addressed to me, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences. And in it, it the, the cover letter said, Dear Rocky, you won't remember me, but um, I used to be the uh, um, assistant librarian at the American Film Institute in 1980 when you were a directing fellow there. He says, I'm now the acquisitions archivist at the uh, Margaret Herrick Library, which is the library of the Academy, mm-hmm. and I discovered this letter and he might be interested in it. And I turned the page, and there was this letter from my father, written to Swanson in 1939. My dad was uh, 24 years old. Mm-hmm. He'd just come off a train from, from Brooklyn with maybe 50, 100 bucks in his pocket, and he was looking for a job as an agent. And my dad went on to be a very successful agent in Hollywood, representing Bogart and uh, Joan Crawford and, uh, and uh, a number of other luminaries, and uh, ultimately became a... Uh, a studio executive with MCA and Universal, and then became a producer of 35 films, including Earthquake, The Airport Movie, Slaughterhouse-Five, gave Clint Eastwood his first uh, directing gig with Play Misty for me, and uh, was instrumental in putting Steven Spielberg 
on uh, the Sugarland Express, which was Stephen's first feature film. So, in other words, he so had a, he had a little. Dad. So that letter <laughs> inspired me to call my agent and say I wanted to do a, a book on the on letters from Hollywood, and and then uh, I realized that I couldn't do it by myself, and I needed someone who really knew the archival system in the United States, and and that was Barbara Hall. I was introduced to Barbara Hall. And she came on the project with me and did a, just a fantastic job. I couldn't have done the book without her. Yeah. Um, and that's sort of what that letter meant. Well, uh, okay, so the, so now you're telling me something great that I didn't know. I, I might have missed it when I read it, but this is what started the whole book, is this letter itself. Yes, this, this letter really started it because after I got the letter, I was so moved. I, I took Howard uh, Prouty, the acquisitions archivist, out to lunch to thank him. And he then took me into the archives of the Herrick Library, which is just immense. It's got, I think, over 12 million photos alone. And mm-hmm. God knows how many other million pieces of, you know, artifacts, production files, budgets, letters, you know, whatever it is, poster art. And uh, and then Barbara and I wind up combing the country in, in archives all over the country for, for other letters for our book. Well, it's interesting, you know, uh, Hollywood is clearly filled with people who are famous. Celebrity is uh, part and parcel of the Back, backbone of Hollywood, but but it requires huge numbers of people like your father, who is well known within the industry, but not really known to the general public, um, to to make it work. What I find really instructive about this letter, and I'm not sure that this letter would work in today's environment, but he's he's audacious in approaching H.N. Swanson and and coming at him as if almost as if he you know should be in the position already. And he's 24 years well, old. Well, that was what struck me uh, a lot about this letter, because I obviously knew my father. I, my dad was, I think, 42 or when I was born. And so he was you know, well-established at that point. But so I, the personality of my father that I knew, and we were very close, was evident in this letter when he was 24 years old. Mm-hmm. I could see his soul. I could see his passion. I could see his ballsiness. I could see his humor. So all of the sort of the, the parts of the personality that I remember my dad having uh, were evident in this letter when he was just forming who he was as a man. And interestingly enough, as I went across to the country to get rights to the letters to put in the book from the family members, the family members were struck in the same way I was, is that we could hear the voices of our loved ones through the letter writing, mm-hmm. which is lost to today's generation. It is. And, and because the, the rights to the letter are, are with, the copyright of the letter is with the family or the estate of the person who wrote the letter, not with the owner of the letter, not with the person who possesses a copy of the letter. And so by going around and getting the rights to you know, Sinatra and you know, the Hepburn and Bogart and all the people in the book, um, I, you know, I had to connect with their family. And and so that was really emotional for me and a great journey. Yeah, I'm I'm sure it was, and I want to cover the the rights part of this in a moment. But uh, but before we get to how you know the the challenges of getting rights to all these things, um, it, it, you told me earlier that uh, this book resulted in many unexpected twists and turns in the in the journey. Can you give us some examples of what you went through? Well, I don't know if it's twists and turns. Um, is the is the right uh, well, correct, definition? Correct me for sure. More with surprises and and and, and effort, and mm-hmm. such as you know letters that we couldn't find the estate holder. Um, in some ways, I had to uh, you know bring in a private investigator and and go into sort of the you know deep estate files and wills and and trusts and whatnot to find the people. 
along the way. And and then also what was really fascinating is some of the great stories that the uh, the sons and the daughters of the icons would tell me um, that were you know quite incredible about how things were cast and who was you know having an affair with who and and just you know these amazing amazing tales that go on behind the scenes of Hollywood, which mm-hmm. are obviously they're not in the book. Um, and I guess one of the other surprises is it's something I'm sort of hesitant sometimes to talk about, but I'm winding up talking about it more, is that we found a letter um, from uh, uh, Gilbert Rowland, the uh, silent movie star who transitioned into, into talkies. Right. And he wrote this wonderful letter to, uh, to um, Clara Bow. And uh, they, Clara Bow was in a, in a psychiatric uh, facility later in her life, and, and Rowland writes this great letter reminiscing about their love affair and their movies they made, including The Plastic Age back in the silent days. And it's a very tender, wonderful letter. So I had to go and find uh, the rights to, to Gilbert Rowland's letter, and I hired an investigator because I couldn't find the daughter. And it turned out she you know, was under the radar but living 10 minutes from me. <laughs> so when I called her and I said, um, you know, would you give her permission for this letter? After I'd emailed it to her, she said, I, I, I would be happy to. Um, but it's very important that I see you face to face, and and so I was, I was curious about this, but always happy to meet people. So I called David Sten, who wrote the uh, the biography uh, Running Wild, which was the story of uh, of, of Clara Bow, and and so I said, you know, David, why does she want to meet me? And he started laughing, and he said, Well, who do you think uh, who do you think her um, her aunt was, um, or who do you think her mother was? And I said, I don't know. She says, well, Constant Bennett, the actress. Well, it turns out Constant Bennett is Joan Bennett's sister. And Joan Bennett and my dad were having an affair in an apartment across from MCA, which became the genesis for the movie The Apartment by Billy Wilder. Wow. And so um, Joan Bennett's husband, Walter Wanger, ambushed my dad and Bennett in the MCA parking lot and, and, and shot my dad. And, and the rumor was my dad was shot in the balls. And that was came, that stayed the rumor until I was born to you know many years later when my dad had, after my dad had married my mom right and so Jillian Rowland David said Jillian Rowland's going to want to know if your father was really shot I said oh come on how why would she want to do that well that's actually what happened is is at the lunch she asked me if uh, Walter was accurate. I told her, you know, no, he wasn't accurate because I'm here talking to you. And she laughed, <laughs> and then she signed the, signed the release, and we became friends. And she's been a participant in many, many of the other uh, the activities we've had, and read her dad's letter. And it turned out to be a great friendship that I have with Jill Rowland now. So that was quite a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> we, is there anything, any other stories that are kind of like off the charts, interesting and funny? I don't know if there's anything really, really funny. Uh, I think that there are some. There are some letters we found that, you know, I thought we wouldn't get the rights to. I mean, there's a letter that uh, we have uh, from Hedda Hopper, the gossip columnist, the yeah. famous gossip columnist, and uh, and and uh, she writes this letter to a silent movie actress, a good friend of hers named Eileen Pringle. And the letter, and paraphrasing the letter, is that you know Hedda talks about the the film Citizen Kane before it was released because she'd seen a in a preview. And she talks about how foul this movie is and the director will never work again. And she just destroys the film and everything about the film. And, and so I now, have, obviously, we know where Citizen Kane became historically. So I had to, you know, reach uh, her granddaughter, who was a survivor of, of that family. And I thought there's no way that she was going to 
sign off on this letter because it makes your grandmother look like a, you know, an, an idiot. Right. And um, and she, the grand, turns out the granddaughter really cracked up about the letter. She thought it was hysterical. She had, she thought her grandmother was a kook, and <laughs> great stories about her. And so she signed off the letter. So, and then I, I didn't think we were going to get the Tom Hanks letter either because oh. first of all, Tom's alive, and um, it, it, he's Tom Hanks, and. Uh, but when he saw the letter that we, we showed him, which was a letter to George Roy Hill, yes. the director of The Sting, and Butch Cassidy, and a number of other films, um, and in that letter, basically, uh, Tom, at 17 years old, is telling George Roy Hill all the reasons why he should be hired an act, as an actor, and it's quite hilarious and self-deprecating. And so um, that was a letter that I, I didn't think we were going to get. And uh, it turned out to be wonderful. And actually, Jane Fonda had the, the same reaction. And she, you know, obviously, she's alive. And she found, you know, we sent her a letter that her father, Henry Fonda, had written to director William Wyler on the day that Jane was born, mm-hmm. coming from Jane, announcing herself to the world <laughs> and telling Wyler that she wanted to be an actress. And so, you know, those those were fun sort of stories behind it. I, I love um, the, I love the, that, the, you know, that's, that's sort of it. There are other things down the road, but you know, I love the sign off that for another episode. I, sure. The, I love the, the letters that didn't make it. The letters. <laughs> well, that should be your sequel. That's your second book. Yeah. Um, the, the reason they didn't make it is they were, they were revealing things that we felt were, were troublesome for us. Ah, in the book. ah. well, the, you know, the, I wouldn't call, um, this book, um, in any way controversial. You know, I'm, no, we we didn't want to be. We wanted to be a tribute to the these the men and women who you know made Hollywood, who built it built it in the 20th century, and to be a reflection of culture too. And that's why, as we you know, you go through the book, you're dealing with you know depression area area and World War Two and you know the you know Korean War and and the production codes and censorship and blacklists and all these other things that sort of ran parallel to the, the way the evolution of the film. Mm-hmm. I think one of the beauty parts of the book is it reveals the human characters behind the people that we think are something other than what they are because we know them as the characters in the movies, but but they are in fact yes, humans. Yes, and I think that, that that sort of revealed itself as we started to uh, look through the thousand or so letters that we had we had found, Barbara finding most of them, and um, and you know we, as we chose letters that we loved, we sort of realized you know as we were pulling these letters out that there was this human connection and there was this vulnerability um, to to the people who were writing and there were the same sort of fears and anxieties hopes that we have today with our own lives and they were evident in a lot of these letters and quite wonderful and touching Mm -hmm. so I, i just wanted to comment on the tom hanks letter briefly that i love the way he signs this letter he signs it as your good old buddy thomas j hanks that's just fantastic <laughs> yeah no well you know you can see tom's personality all through it. again like similarly to my dad you know tom was not an actor he was a kid you know he wanted to be in the movie business and uh, you know in in this letter you completely see sort of the the silliness and the twinkle in the eye and the goofiness um that, that uh, tom has today and we've seen in his parts and sort of you know his interviews and whatnot and it's quite wonderful to see you know him as an unformed complete Man at a at an age where he's just sort of evolving out of being a teenager into adulthood. I'm I'm gonna and I'm gonna do desiring very much to be in the movies, and so the approach he took with Hill 
is incredibly funny. I mean, it's, it's a, there's a ton of laughs. I'm gonna I'm gonna do one quote from it. It says, "Let's work out the details of my discovery. We can do it the way Lana Turner was discovered. Me sitting on a soda shop stool. You walk in and notice me, and bango, I'm a star." Now that's that that's both very funny and quite prescient in a way. It's true, and and you know, as you know from the letter, letter it goes on with a lot of other bangos of all yes, these bangos. scenarios of where you know George will discover Tom, um, and they get funnier and wilder, and you know, as you get through the bango, the, the bangos. <laughs> so uh, yeah, wonderful. It is, and, it, and you know, it, it just shows you that you know Tom. Uh, Tom has a sense of humor about himself, and you know, when he got the letter. You know, I had a release in my hand the very next day. There was no delay. He just signed it and said, you know, basically, good luck. And, uh, you know, conversely, getting back to stories about the book, yeah. is that we, I particularly ran into a number of gatekeepers. And, and a story, you know, the, the story about the gatekeepers is that, you know, we found a letter um, from Francis Coppola to Sam Goldwyn about, you're a big boy now. Mm-hmm. And so I called... Um, Francis's attorney a number of times and emailed and you know never got a return phone call. I you know called and emailed up to Zoetrope to uh, you know his production people to try to get him to see the letter and nobody returned my calls. And so I called Fred Fuchs who produced a, a movie, a four-hour miniseries with me at CBS in, in, uh, ten years ago. And I and he he worked with Zoetrope and my production partner was at Zoetrope on that film. And uh, I said, you know, are you in touch with Francis? I've got this letter. I'd love to get it to him. And he says, no, I'm not. But you should call the family archivist because I told him all my problems. So I sent the letter to the family archivist, and uh, I got a call back from the intern who's like, you know, 22 years old. Right. And the intern reads the letter. He goes, oh my God, this is a fantastic letter. I mean, I went it over to Francis's office. He, you know, he emails me back in five, ten minutes. He says, Francis loves the letter. Send the release. He'll sign it. And can he have a copy? And, you know, so all the gatekeepers were out there trying to, like, make a decision that Francis wouldn't be bothered with this. But when Francis saw the letter, he not only signed the, the release that afternoon, but he got the letter, like, hanging in his office, from what I understand. <laughs> and, you know, on the reverse side of the gatekeepers is that because my dad had worked at Universal for 35 years, you know, I thought I could get into their, their library and because it's a closed library to researchers. Sure. And so I got a lot of roadblocks from the people who run that library. And so... A good friend of mine said, oh, well, you should call, you know, contact Jeff Shell, who's like the chairman of Comcast, the top guy. So I, you know, was put in touch with, with Jeff. He says, oh, my God, I love, I love this. You know, you should definitely be in it. And it got passed over to Ron, down to Ron Meyer and an email that, you know, president of Universal. Oh, this is a great idea. Universal should be involved. Ultimately, it trickled down to the man who had, who had been, you know, stonewalling me and blocking me. Very nice, very apologetic, but not doing anything. And he writes, oh, what a great idea. We should help you. <laughs> And so, you know, it's two sides of the gatekeeper, you know, coming in through the bottom and coming through the very top. And so there are a lot of those kind of, you know, situations in, in, in trying to clear these rights that I was facing. So, so, so was, it, was that the most challenging uh, rights clearance that you had to go through, or is there something even more there challenging? Are a lot of, there are a lot of, pro, a lot of rights issues. Um, most of the time, I'd say that 90% of the time it was is pretty straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a few institutional situations that were difficult. We had a... Uh, sort of a nutty letter we found from uh, Randolph Hearst, uh, and I think it was written to was that who written to? I don't remember. It might have been written to Jack Warner when when uh, when Marion Davies left uh, to come to Universal. And uh, this is the old man, and, William Randolph uh, Hearst. 
What? The old man, William Randolph Hearst. Is that what you mean? William, yeah. yeah. And, and Hearst was, uh, you know, advocating for Warner to, to have her play more dramatic roles because she'd made her you know, name sort of a comedian. Sure. And uh, so, I, you know, the Hearst organization killed it. You know, they, they, they didn't want anything about Hearst in the book. And so, you know, that was, that institutions like that sometimes, you know, hit us down. And then there was a weird sort of, a weird one, which we ultimately got is that, you know, I, we have a, a, a great letter from uh, Paul Newman to Ray Stark, and it's really a funny letter. And, um, and so I contacted the Newman family, because uh, Paul had done a couple of movies for my dad, you know, way back in the 70s. Right. I didn't know the family other than Joanne, and she's not well. And uh, Joanne Woodward. And so um, I contacted one of the daughters, and she said, you know, I love the letter, I love the idea of the book, but we don't have the rights because, you know, pretty much two weeks before, you know, Dad died, you know, he, he changed his will, and he signed up all of her, all the likeness and, tra- and, and images and everything else uh, over to Bob Forrester. Forrester was his business partner in Newman Organics, which, by the way, Nell Newman created, who was then, you know, fired after Paul died. And, uh, wow. and so it became a real sort of battle within the family and, and the Forrester group. And Nell said, you know, you, you'll, Nell Newman said, you know, I don't think they're going to give you give you the rights. And, and they were really tough about it. It really until finally I sent a letter saying, look, I'm only trying to keep Paul's you know image alive, and this is a wonderful thing. And there's you know there's no monetary gain for me. And 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 you know so I made this point. Ultimately, the legal team at Forrester gave gave us the rights to use the letter, but. It was more difficult than it needed to be. Yeah, I just can't imagine. It took a long time. How many years did it take to gather all the rights and letters? We were three years on the project. That's a yeah. lot of that's a lot of time, effort, and energy for sure. And I'm sure right. you, I'm sure you laid out a certain amount of money, like you say, you hired detectives and so on. Yeah, so. I wouldn't recommend going into the <laughs> publishing business the, the, in this way. I mean, we got an advance that for for books like this was a decent advance. Yeah. But we spent the entire advance on our travel sure. to you know various archives around the country and you know copying fees, Xerox, you know legal fees. We took out an errors and omission um, you know insurance project uh, policy on the book. So you know by the end of the day, uh, you know we didn't make any money. But you know the book is on the New York Times, Wall Street Journal. It's uh, it's gorgeous. Um, you know, the AP, uh, Vanity Fair, you know, they're all on the like the, the best holiday book lists and have been reviewed incredibly well. And so, and there's been a lot of fun in it and uh, positive impact from the from the book. Um, so that was worth a lot. Yeah, I think anybody that loves Hollywood will absolutely love this book. There's no question. Um, do you, t- t- uh, tell us for a moment or two about the how you and Barbara collaborated on the book. What did you? How did you divvy up your responsibilities? Well. At the very beginning, and I, as I came up with this idea, you know, I think we all have ideas, and then it's just execution sure. of how, if you're going to do the idea and how the work that goes into it. And so, you know, you know, being in the business as a producer and also as a director and writer, you know, I know that you know some roles are better delegated to certain people to do because they're more knowledgeable. So, I knew right away that I did not have the, the background, um, to, you know, at the level. At the, I've done a, run, a lot of research in my writing, but I. I uh, didn't have the 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 the, the uh, ability or the knowledge to you know dig into archives and you know state files and whatnot. So um, I asked Howard Prouty, the man who had originally sent me the uh, my dad's letter, right. you know, who he would recommend, and he recommended Barbara, who had 30 years as in the business in archival research and as a historian, and you know really this is her life. And uh, so when we were introduced. Um, 
you know, she had never had a book published, and I had had you know nine done, and so um, so I said, look, I'll, you know, I'll share I'll share credit with you, but you know, you're going to have to do most of the research because you know, or teach me how to do it. So Barbara became the lead on finding the letters, mm. and um, and even when I would go across the country to find letters, Barbara would give me sort of a, a finding aids and directions to like where I could find Joan Crawford's file or right. where I could find Vincent Price's file, you know, so I wouldn't be like sort of lost in the Library of Congress, you know. So she was incredibly helpful in doing all of that. And where I came in was I came in and doing all, um, all the clearances of the rights. Um, and also, you know, also I found, you know, a number of letters that, uh, I, you know, I tracked down on my own that are in the book. So, um, you know, Barbara did most of the, the finding of the letters, and I did most of the clearing of the rights. Um, and I've done, you know, I, I've been in charge of marketing and, and publicity on the book as well. So it worked out really nice um, and nicely, and uh, it was a great collaboration. Did, did you both sort of share in the writing of the interstitial work? We did to some extent, but I would say that Barbara did 90% of it because the original concept, um, or even maybe more than that, uh, but the original concept that I had on the book and the sale of the book is that there would be um, the letter and then there would be sort of uh, a longer you know, a page or two of interpretation that would be more in the line of the way that I write. But because we found so many letters and our editor said, no, it's got to be caption-based. And so now you're in a place of really no, not creative writing, but uh, definition writing sure. of what the letter means. Sure. So because Barbara's a historian, you know, that's what she does. Mm-hmm. And that was very, it was, I wouldn't say it was easy for her, but it was certainly easier for her than for me. Sure. And she did an amazing job on uh, it. Yeah. You know, you're basically writing 137 paragraphs. Yeah, it, she, she did, ter- well, you both did a terrific job. I mean, the book is very clear in what those... Um, you know, those explanations of the letters and how how they came to be and so on, and, and some of the backstory, just excellent, just really revealing in a way that I, I've been studying Hollywood my entire life, and I've never seen anything quite like it. It's always, it's either, Hollywood books tend to be either very dense or just lightweight, but not a lot in between, and this is right in the sweet spot where you're getting It, it really was a great, stuff. you know, great team effort. I mean, not only with Barbara and me, but our publisher, Abrams Books, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the book is a gorgeous book. Gorgeous. And, um, and, and you know, the whole Abrams team, the editors, the art designers, uh, you know, the product layout people, the marketing people, they all were, you know, we we're all part of the team on it. And it just turned out great. I mean, we, we could never have expected the success on it. Well, uh, and I wish you a ton of luck on it on going forward. Let's talk for just a moment about, um, about Hollywood today, because I know since you first got into the business, it has changed in a in major ways. Um, you're the executive producer of a new Lifetime movie, and tell us about what that movie's about. It's called You Can't Take My Daughter. Yes, it's another one of the great titles that, uh, that are chosen by studios to <laughs> basically tell people what the movie's about, um, which goes to the bigger question. Um, this is a story that I had actually found, a true story, uh, about seven, eight years ago, uh, a true st- about a woman who... Uh, was uh, was was raped after uh, after graduating law school and uh, and she became pregnant and the rapist came back when mm. she was pregnant and, you know second time and threatened to kill her and um, and she in a panic at that time uh, you know it was during Katrina um, Hurricane Katrina she ran and she wound up having this baby um, 
from the rapist, and she runs uh, to to Florida and settles there, and um, and builds a life there, and and then um, eleven years later, uh, seven, eight, ten, eleven years later, the rapist shows up in Florida, one in custody of the kid, or, you know, or co-custody of the kid, and it was crazy. And at that time, the law was that you know you could be a rapist, but you could didn't mean you you were the biological father doesn't mean you're a bad dad. And no one had ever won um, a case in the situation, and because she had lost law experience, she and another lawyer basically formed a defense, and and wound up winning that. And that Debbie Wasserman Schultz came into the picture, and who was then a congresswoman from from Florida, mm-hmm. and, and uh, they changed the law, and that law became a template for many other states afterwards. And so um, that's what the book was about. That's the story was about, and then. I tried to pitch it seven, eight years ago. I couldn't sell it. And then an executive who remembered the story and had passed on it years ago called me up and said, is that story still available? And I said, I'll check. And so I stayed in touch with the woman, the life rights holder. And, I, and um, you know, she says, yeah. And so made, you know, did another option. And ABC came in as my partner. And you know, we sold it to Lifetime. And, and you know, the movie, from what I'm told, it's going to be on in January. I don't have a, a date yet. Right. But um, yeah, so that was it. Uh, I wasn't ultimately wasn't that involved with 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 production after development because it it just happened to fall during the whole book launch and the uh, and the um, you know the whole of promotion sure. across the country. And after three years, that was my choice to spend the time there. Well, we and, um, we also my partner did really produce the movie. For sure, executive producer or one of the executive producers. We also part of what Hollywood is today. Yes, uh, well, like that's what I was going to say. We also know that in Hollywood, it's not uncommon for people at various stages of, of production, pre-production and so on, to be involved and then not involved. That's not uncommon at all. No, it's, it's, it's a little bit uncommon for me because in the movies that I've produced, I've been you know, pretty hands-on right. on them. And in and, and, and this one, it was a, you know, a different circumstance where, where I knew I was, once they said production to me you know, in the fall, I knew that I was not going to be available. And, and Lifetime likes to really only send one producer to set, and, and my partner, Linda Berman, has a, actually, she has a, a lot more experience on set than I do, mm-hmm. especially in this area, and she's just a fantastic producer, a fantastic person, and so it was, you know, it was very much in good hands, and, um, you know, I, I, I saw a cut of the film last week, and I thought it, you know, it's pretty good, pretty good. I'm not a huge fan of a lot of these sort of true-life stories, because I think they get watered down especially when there are important themes in it. But, you know, I, I, was, I was pretty happy with the first cut. So, and so we'll see, what, we'll see what it turns out to be. Well, uh, for sure. Um, uh, t- tell me about some of the challenges that you find in Hollywood today that are very different from when you first started. What, what, what are the big differences? Well, I think in, in some ways, um, you know, generationally, you see it in music and you see it in film, is that, and I'm just setting this off this way, is that, that the older generation thinks that how they made movies was better than the newer generation, and people thought the old music was better than new music, and now we listen to rap and we compare it to you know, our time and rock and roll, and we're trying to figure out like what that is versus what we liked. And so there's all of that happening on a cultural level. And it, you have to, as you get older, you have to accept that the world is changing and younger people come in and you know they have a different vision a way they want to do it so mm-hmm. i'm accepting of that on the other hand i think that similarly in the same way that uh um 
you know, the, the news divisions of, of networks when we came up were not in the entertainment division. They were autonomous and weren't expected to make money. Right. And as multinational corporations came in and 24-hour news cycle came in, um, they became segmented, and that's where we are today with Fox and MS, MSNBC, and, and they, applied, they appealed to certain people. So in the movie business, as we've evolved, also these big companies have come in. And what has happened, at least in the film world, is the original idea is almost impossible to set up unless you are Tom Hanks, who finds something. So all those great writers and directors that we saw in the 70s, whether you know Scorsese and Coppola and, and, and that group, um, that were doing really interesting films in the 1970s, um, you know, there's not a there's not a, a, um, a pathway to doing those films. You know, the spec the spec script market was very big, where you know people would write scripts and they would go on to market and you'd get all these great ideas um, for these great films. It became it became sort of legendary, and then today, for the most part, not completely, but for the most part, they are event oriented films. Um, or their sequels or prequels, or you know, derived from you know Marvel comics, and there are these very expensive films that are done by the big studios, and so there is not the ability for the, the the original thought to find its way to make a movie. On the other hand, we have premium cable, and we didn't have premium cable in the old days, so a lot of the great writing, the great ideas, That's where it's going. are are moving over, have moved over into the Netflix sure. and HBOs and the Amazons of the world. So we're seeing some of those films finding their way there. And, and what's fascinating to me is that my dad in 1974 did Earthquake, and actually shot in 73, out in 74. And, and uh, he billed that film in all the ads, an event. And that term, an event, had never been used before to promote a film. Now it's used on everything. Sure. You know, it doesn't matter. An event, it's kind of Tuesday night, an event. You know? <laughs> and so my dad ha- felt that you needed to give an audience something more to get them into the theaters. And so Sensorround was de- developed around, you know, Earthquake. And he thought that, you know, looking towards the future, he thought, you know, people have to get in their cars, drive to a movie theater, you know, buy the tickets, buy the popcorn, buy everything, you know, park their car, all this stuff, drive home, that um, there needed to be a reason to get into that world and do that. And, you know, lo and behold, you know, that's where we are today. Um, you know, you, ha- you know. Oh, we have to see. You know, we have to see. You know, Superman 17. You know, on the big screen. You know, see all the effects and hear the amazing Dolby surround sounds. And so it is. It has become an event. It, d- and um, and so that's the frustration today because you know the good, really good writers or the writers with something to say, um, for the most part, don't have a key to the kingdom. Right. And that is the saddest part because. For the most part, great movies don't get made. Well, do you think that movies, uh, this is where I think it's going, I think movies are going to become much like books in a similar way. Your book, the, a coffee table book, a beautiful book like that is always going to be published and welcome. But the ordinary books are all going over to digital. And movies are, in, in a similar way, I think are becoming all big, spectacular, as you say, event movies, and that the really intelligent stuff, the, 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 the smart stuff, the long-form stuff is all going to be on Netflix and, and well, I think we're seeing, HBO. we're seeing that right now, and I think that, you know, readership, I don't remember the, the stats, but, you know, each year readership um, goes down, 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 and down, and because we live in this world of immediate, you know, need to get information, 
and um, and so you know to actually sit down and commit to you know spending a couple of days you know seven eight hours nine hours reading a, a novel uh, or a book a nonfiction book I mean it's very you don't get the younger generation doing that again mm-hmm. for the most part my kids do but you know my kids grew up on the writer and you know, so they grew up in that world but for the most people they don't and um, and so. I think we're we're you know going down that path, and I think also, you know, it has to do with our education system, and you know we've been you know we've been sort of dumbed down to the easiest easiest road. Yeah, I and, agree. You, know, you go back and read some of the, the the papers of even you know our founding fathers and the thoughts that they had, and you look at that and the language that they used, and you know, and you realize that um, you know young people today and you know they they don't have that those skills. You know, or even, or, or it's not built into them to to be curious enough to find them. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just going to go down and down and down. I mean, I really do. I think it's, you know, I'm fortunate. Unfortunately, I lived at the tail end of it, uh, what I predicted to be the end of it. But uh, but um, at least in the mainstream way. Well, it, it you know, I, you know that I teach screenwriting here in Pittsburgh, and. Uh, one of the things that we notice in our program is we've got people that want to be writers, but they don't seem to want to be readers. And you've got to be a reader to be a writer, I think. And um, and you certainly must know movies. You got to know genres and all the rest of it. But you certainly have to understand how to form, put words into sentences that make ideas. And yes, re- you have to be a reader to be a writer. There's no question. You just inherently like learn language and 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 thought and you know how to structure a piece and all of that in fact um it's it's fascinating like even in my own family um i see some of the papers i'm asked with some of the papers to help them with the papers and i realize that um some of, some of their papers are you know very simplistic not, not all the kids but a couple of kids are very simplistic sure and um and so you know, and they haven't read. They didn't. You know, they these are my stepchildren. They they didn't grow up in a world, which where you know books were really pushed, and and so, you know, they're now in college, and and you know, you know, I don't think the papers. I don't think some of these papers are. are they don't have the skills to do this. So I'm trying to catch them up, and now and you know help them out. And you know, conversely, there's my stepdaughter is you know she's a she's at Penn and she's reads a lot and. You know, she's uh, you know very interested and curious, and so. In, but I think that's rare. I mean, I, from the young people that I know, um, and I and I throw it out. It's really interesting when we sit around and say, "Hey, guys, you know what books are you reading?" And like, there's nobody's read a book. Yeah, it's it's rare and becoming rarer. So, all right. So yeah. now let's assume that you you are in today. Last couple questions: that you're sitting there in Hollywood today, and you are in your 20s or 30s or you know you're 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 struggling to to make it into the business and you're selling trying to sell a script and you're not really getting very far do you have any thoughts as to the the way to to stick it out what's the how, how should people think about it? when when should they abandon a work well i would say if you're confident the work is good, you never abandon it. You may put it asleep, you know, send it to be asleep for a while, such as in my Lifetime movie that, you know, was gone, was asleep for seven years before it awakened. I actually just sent a script out. I was with a meeting the other day, and somebody said, oh, LeBron James has this, uh, you know, new company, and he's looking for, you know, scripts in this genre and whatnot. And I thought about what I had in my library, and I'd actually written a script, I think, in maybe 1990. But it's a period piece, so it hasn't gone out of date because it took place in the 40s. Right. 
And, you know, so I pulled that script out and I send it out. You know, maybe it'll, maybe it'll be interesting to him. Maybe it won't be interesting to him. So you never really give up on material that you believe in. You just may have to put it away because new administrations come in. You know, they're presidents and vice presidents and development people. They're changing every couple of years. Mm-hmm. It's a revolving door. Sometimes you can change the title if it's been exposed and, you know, change some things around it to sort of have another shot at it. So I, I don't think that I don't think you abandon material that's good. You may abandon material that you're convinced after sending it out that the reactions have been so negative that there's a consensus that the script is not very good. You may want to consider why that happened and either if you want to change it or not. Um, but, you know, I'd say, you know, the thing about Hollywood, actually in my first book that I had done, How I Broke Into Hollywood for HarperCollins, where we interviewed a lot of people in Hollywood from the very top levels to, you know, craft service people about how they broke in. We saw time and time again that the successful people never gave up. It wasn't like they had to be, they, they, they wanted to be in the business, they had to be in the business. It defined who they were, and they were going to do everything they could to get in the business. Mm-hmm. And you saw that time and time again with successful people. Um, and so I would encourage the young person to not give up. But also I would tell them to be smart about it. Whereas, like, when I was young, I would write and do things that I just were interesting to me because I liked, I was curious and I wanted to write it. And, the, and there was a bigger opening to go in with those types of projects. Now you have to evaluate. Like, okay, so who are the buyers? What are they looking for? You know, is this a piece of IP that I found that will give value to it? Do, can I get an actor attached? Can I get some money attached? You know, what are you going to do to give yourself a leg up? as opposed to just coming in with, like, you know, a young writer without an agent saying, you know, hello, hello, I got this script here, I got the script here. I mean, that's just not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, and in some ways, back in the day before there was video, it was the same problem for directors because, you know, you couldn't make your own videos like you can today and, you know, cut something. True. So you're trying to be a director, and they say, you know, what have you done? You have said nothing. So you need a film to get a director, and you need a studio to give you the money to make a film. And so what are you going to do? So there was a different frustration back in the day. I had a meeting with Sidney Pollack before he passed in 2008 uh, about some projects we were work talking about, and you know we we got into that sort of thing about you know about you know about new projects. And he said, you know, if I get a DVD in those days, it wasn't digital so much. When I get a DVD from a young filmmaker, you know, it takes me two seconds to throw it into the uh, you know into the machine, uh, and I'll take a look at five minutes of it, and I'll know in five minutes if the guy has a good idea. If he has a good idea, I might have a meeting with him. You know, but, um, you know, so, so, you know, kids today have that ability to go out and actually do it. And just even on their phone. They can use their phone. Even on their phone. You know, Michael Corbell, who's now one of the top commercial directors, you know, in the country, maybe in the world, the car commercial portion and whatnot, um, you know, he made, he and his now wife um, had made really the first iPhone television series called Goldilocks. When they were both in the master's program at USC, hmm. and and um, and you know Michael got his break basically because he did a spec commercial for Coca-Cola and it was win one and you know sort of set his career off. But you know there's a guy and and Anna his wife has um, also made uh, some feature films. So they started by just basically taking their iPhone and and making a movie, and that movie got you know a zillion views, and um, and they were off to the races. So. You know, the same thing with a script. I mean, if you can take a scene from your script and shoot it and attach it, or you can do a great sizzle reel so that you can send an email to an agent with a, you know, one-minute sizzle reel about what your, what your script is about, 
and that they don't have to sit and read you know 110 pages from an unknown writer that's going to go through it, it if best it's going to go through a 22 year old store reader in the mailroom and you know sort of hopefully channel itself up to someone who can make a decision if you put a you know a minute minute sizzle reel that you cut together on you know through iMovie or Final Cut Pro or whatever systems you use on Premiere um, you know you, you if someone takes a look at a, a minute piece they go oh that's a great idea you know send the script along so those are the kind of things you have to be thinking about, I think, as a young filmmaker. Is, you know, what's going to give you the leg up? What's going to separate you from the rest of the group? Those are the things I would encourage young filmmakers to do today. But also to do your homework. You know, watch old movies. Understand scene structure. Understand how good so movies important. plot drives, uh, character drives, drives the movie, and plot doesn't drive the movie. Um, and so you get invested in your career. Understand all that stuff, understand what makes it work by doing your homework and becoming knowledgeable about the business you want to get into. And I don't think that old movies are 1990 movies. I'm talking about go back and go back into the 20th century and take a look at the you know, 15 or 20 great films and keep moving through the 70s and then get yourself up to today and see why old storylines still work out today in yeah. event films because yeah. they're not that many, you know, they're not really that many stories. To, you know, uh, premises to stories. You know, boy meets girl, boy with girl, boy gets girl. You know, you know those. You know, underdog guy gets thrown out and he gets the bottom and he comes back and he you know survives and evolves. I mean, so you start to see those those things. Uh, you know, going back right back to Shakespeare. Uh, um, yeah. And the, so, do your homework. There, there Don't are, be lazy. There are there are really no new plot lines, but there are lots of ways to come at them. Um, Absolutely. And, and I, you know, I was going to ask you if you had a piece of advice for anybody, but you just gave us two giant ones, so I don't really need to ask that question. Those are fantastic <laughs> pieces of advice. Well, I was, as I said to you yesterday, I mean, or to you yesterday, it's, it's funny because when I was at the FI in 1979-80 and the first day um, that all these, you know, wannabe young filmmakers from around the world came to meet Tony Villani, who was the chairman of the film department, and he, we were all in this room. And we all had been done already some sort of film. I had done documentaries. And, you know, we were very serious about our craft and what we wanted to do. And, you know, went to AFI because we thought it would help us with our careers. And so Tony says to the group, he says, the only thing I will promise you that you will, what will happen to you in film school is by the end of the term, you will be older. <laughs> and, and, you know, so that's it. I mean, the rest of it is luck, talent, you know, aggressiveness ambition, um, networking, you know, all those sort of things. Some finding, of w- some finding people who can go through life with you. Some of which you can control. Studio uh, agency secretaries. Right. Some, some, you know, some, of, some of those things yeah, you can control. Those are the people who are going to become the sellers as they move up through the ranks. And, you know, find those people right. I, and, I, and attach yourself to them. I was saying that and, some... And, uh, some you know, they'll be your friends and they'll be able to help you get along as you move on through your life. I'm still friends. You know, with people I came up with the business with. The fact is that we're all in our 60s, and most of the people, you know, who ran studios are long out of the business, um, who I was friends with. But you know, it it benefited me for a good part of my life mm-hmm. in the business. Well, you know, a certain amount of it you have control over it, and some of it you don't. You don't really control luck, but I, you know, I, I ascribe to Thomas Jefferson's maxim that the harder you work, the luckier you get. Um, uh, but you know you you can't control that part of it, but you got to have some of it, you know. 
it, it, it's not all just hard work because uh, that's not the end of it. It has to be shown to the right people at the right time and all those good things. Um, well, if you have a second, I'll tell you the luckiest thing that happened to me. Sure. All right. It was back in the 80s, and I had uh, developed a story, a uh, motorcycle story, you know, sort of like a rocky story about motor- motorcycle racing in Europe. And I was unable to sell the script. And... Um, it, and a producer came into Columbia, and Robert Lawrence, who's the executive of Columbia, and he had he had submitted like I guess a number of really horrendous pieces of material, and uh, and he was related to Trisha Levine. He was married to Trisha Levine, who was the daughter of Joseph E. Levine, the producer. Right. So you know they were they were a little bit like helpful to him. They you know, sort of indulged him, um, and so he came into the office one day, and Bob Lawrence said, you know, John. Stop bringing me these horrible scripts. Everything you send me is just like unreadable. He says, "You see those scripts over there, and they're like you know fifty scripts like lined up on the floor, you know, piled up." He says, "Every one of those scripts, we're not going to do, and and any one of those scripts, pick any one of those scripts, and they're better than anything that you've ever sent me." So this producer walks over there and he pulls out a script, and it's my script. Oh. And that movie, that movie gets made, <laughs> and so. That's like wow. the luckiest thing that could ever happen. Wow, that is. And at the same time, I've had two movies that were greenlit, ready to go to production, and the, and the, the studio presidents either were fired or they left to go to another studio, and this new executive came in, and they cleaned house, and those movies didn't get made. Ugh. So it just, and that has nothing to do with the material. It just has to do with usually new executives do not want to make old executives films because yeah, yeah. no upside to them. If it fails, it's their fault, and if it's successful, it's the other guy's fault. Right. Success. Right. So that's the that's that's been around in Hollywood forever. When a new regime right. comes in, they pretty much sweep house of what's sitting there. Um, right. Which is so, you know there's, there's a lot of luck in this business, and there's a lot of you know um, there's a lot of ba- good luck, and there's some good luck, and there's a lot of bad luck. Yeah. Well, that, that yeah, you know, and, and a lot and a lot of hard work. So uh, you know, we've been talking for a, a little longer than I thought we were going to talk today. We're up to almost fifty minutes. I, for the listeners, I want you to know that we've been listening to Rocky Lang, who's a uh, been a very successful uh, writer, director, producer for a long time in Hollywood. If you want to know more about Rocky and what he has in his world, do visit RockyLang.com. And you can also check out my very first interview with him right here on Storybeat. Rocky, this has been just another terrific uh, chat, and I greatly appreciate you coming on the show today. I always love being on your show and talking to you. Ask very, very good questions. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's, it's fun, to, fun to talk to you. Thank you. And so we've come to the end of today's Story Beat. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great episodes to you. This podcast would not have been possible without the generous support of the Center for Media Innovation on the campus of Point Park University. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.